You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. But go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 119 this morning. Psalm 119, and uh, we'll jump into verse 65. Okay? Some of you are all like, Psalm 119, what? that's like 170 plus verses. We're not going to tackle it all today. Just eight verses. Verses 65 to 72 as we continue our series, Convinced of His Goodness, this morning. Now, the Bible states in no uncertain terms, God is good, period. No exceptions, no qualifications, no conditions, God is good, period. And yet, if we are honest, we've all had those moments where that claim has been put to test in our life. Those, well, what about this moment? Or God, what are you doing in this moment? Those life circumstances that cast doubt on His goodness, that threaten the truthfulness of that claim or the trustworthiness of God's character. There are those moments in our Life, those moments of affliction, where we ask God, How can this be good? And hopefully, in even asking God that question and wrestling with then the statements in God's Word, we then turn to God's Word in those moments in search of how God answers those questions. For as we turn to God's Word and ask the question, then Psalm 119, 65 to 72, the section today is one of those places to search and to ask the question and find the answer then as God gives it to us. Hopefully you found it there in your Bible. The Psalms are right there in the center. And I just want to read it for us this morning. Follow along and let me read. Psalm 119 picking it up in verse 65, speaking to the Lord, the writer says this, You have dealt well with your servant. O Lord, according to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, this is God's word for God's people uh, today. 
Now, in this section of Scripture, on the one hand, we have the confident statement that God is good and does good. And uh, on the other hand, our human affliction that collide in our life. And as we take both of these, the conclusion that this text makes then is that affliction does not tarnish, but brightens God's goodness. Let me just say that again, for it's the conclusion of this text of Scripture. On the one hand, God's goodness. On the other hand, our human affliction. And the conclusion then, when these two things collide, is that affliction does not tarnish, but brightens God's goodness. Or to use another image, affliction does not withdraw from the treasury of God's goodness like purchases on his account, but in a way that only God can actually do. He increases the wealth of our, his goodness rather in our life. Or to use yet another image, our affliction does not fracture the strength of God's goodness, but galvanizes or strengthens it. And now Psalm 119, just in general, is a fascinating chapter in our Bible. Not just merely because it is the longest chapter uh, in our Bible, but it is a work of poetic art unlike maybe anything else ever written in human history. And I don't just overstate that. Even non-Christians admit that. Even non-Christians would make that claim about this poetic work of art. For each section follows the Hebrew alphabet in eight verses, and each section emphasizes the beauty of God's Word. That's all it is. It's like the beauty of God's Word is like a gem that He holds up and turns it in multiple different directions and showing the beauty of it in a variety of human circumstances. And in so doing, with the, in the beauty of God's Word, it uses multiple words to describe the Word. We saw several of them just in our eight verses here. He uses things like commandments or precepts or laws or statutes, judgment, knowledge, all uh, kinds of words to uh, uh, break up the monotony of just saying the word does this, the word does this. And we do the same thing even in our English language, even as we speak to one another. For how many words or phrases do we use to refer to this book? What do we call it? The Bible, the The sword, the scriptures, the word of God, God's word, the good book, and a variety of other things. Now, like I said, each section here is eight verses, and each verse in Hebrew starts with that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's lost in our English translation. We really lose the beauty. If you want to fully grasp the beauty and the poetic art of this, you have to learn Hebrew which you probably should for many other reasons. I had a professor at Moody that said everybody should learn Hebrew because he thinks it's where we're going to speak in heaven. And so if you want to get a jump start on (laughs) heavenly language, learn Hebrew. I don't know if that's true or not, but in this case, in our section today, you have the ninth Hebrew letter, Teth, that kind of looks like an upside-down U with some angles in the bottom and some, like, hats on top of the, uh, uh, on the top parts of it. And it's work of art. So we're not really sure who wrote it. David, some people think it's a team, but honestly, is whoever wrote it here was like the OG alliterator. I mean, some of y'all throw shade on me for alliterating and other preachers, you know, for doing all that. And these guys were original. Like nothing matches the alliteration found in here. And why, do, why does anybody do that? 
Well, one, it's for beauty, hopefully, but also for memory, as God's people of old would commit this entire chapter to memory. The beginning each verse with the same letter would help that just stick and anchor the truths in it. It, it just created these hooks in their heart and mind. And so our particular section today hones in on God's word as being proven both true and good under fire. In times of affliction. Twice in verse 67 and then in verse 71 is this idea of of being afflicted. And at its core, this is is a very poignant word. It's to be humiliated or oppressed, to have trouble done to you or even violence done to you. And yet as... We've heard the conclusion up front that this kind of affliction can be for our good. How? 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 How How can affliction be good? Well, as we dig in deeper, and I think we'll see it, but even before we see how it can be good, there are some initial ideas that we have to like tackle before we can rightly understand this. There are some suppositions hardwired into humanity in our brokenness that we have to untangle and see beyond. In order to answer this question, how can, how, how can affliction be good, we first have to come to grips with hard does not equal bad. Just like if you're writing that down, hard equal sign slash through it, bad. Hard does not equal bad. And the thing about humans is that we're all bent with this framework of thinking. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. It doesn't matter what era you live in. Our hardwiring and thinking has been corrupted with a a, a proverb, if you will, that goes something like this. Good things happen to good people. And bad things happen to bad people. You've all heard that, right? Maybe even underlying things, maybe you still believe it. It's called many things, but that's the gist of it. Some, you know, refer to that as karma. You know, when I was growing up and things happened, you know, you'd hear people say, well, goes around, comes around, right? Scholars, educated folks, call that line of thinking the retributive justice framework. Retributive justice framework. And so we deduce, when believing this, we deduce that when calamity strikes, it must be because I'm bad or have done bad. Or if it happens to somebody else, it must be because they are bad or have done bad. And on the flip side, if we are prosperous, then it must be because I am good or have done good. But we don't have categories in our mind for success being bad or affliction being good. But here's the thing. The Lord has categories like that. Even if we don't understand all the whys and hows, even if we're shocked and confused in the midst of all these things, but what do we know? What is this word here as the window gets cracked even a bit into heaven from this word is that we can trust God's sovereign good hand, and somehow affliction can be good. We all know the story of Job. 
Maybe, you know, maybe you're like, Job, who, what? That was Job. It's okay. Most people pronounce it as Job. And you want a man who was afflicted under the allowing hand of God. You read Job 1 and 2 this afternoon. Everything stripped away. Yet in Job 5, 17 and 18, Eliphaz, his friend who comes alongside, says these words are on the screen. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Hold the phone. Blessed? Blessed? Happy? Favored? Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. That's vivid imagery, isn't it? Why can he say this? Why can this be blessed? Why can this be good? How can it? Think back just a few moments. How were we nourished in communion? Through Christ's what? Affliction. Wounded, crushed for us. We can say hard doesn't always equal bad because Jesus. Hard doesn't always equal bad in a Christian's life because of what Christ has done. His affliction was unlike anything else that any of us have ever experienced. He was the only truly, purely innocent, good one to walk the face of the planet. Not you, not me, not anyone else. Only Jesus who suffered, not just the uh, brutality of the, uh, of the beatings and the crucifixion, but the whole weight of humanity's sin hung on him. He was the one hung out to dry for us. He was the one wounded and shattered. But all for a purpose. Thus any affliction of ours must be seen through the gospel lens of Christ's affliction. So we share in it and his affliction was uh, the act of it, yes, bad, but for the purpose of working out something good. That we might be saved. Hard doesn't always equal bad because what Christ has done and who went through harm in order for us to be saved. And this is really the second idea that we really have to uh, think on and what our text draws out for us is that affliction itself is, uh, is, is, is not always good. The act... Of affliction, the pain and the harm, we're not saying, the Bible doesn't say that these things are good, but what it produces is good. The result in the good kind hand of God, what He does with it, working it out for our good, is why we can say that affliction doesn't tarnish, but brightens the goodness of God. So why we cling tightly to verses like the Old Testament sovereign goodness verse found in Genesis 50 verse 20. It's here on the, uh, on the screen uh, that says, As for you, just as Joseph speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Why? 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There Joseph saying this to his brothers who decades earlier had afflicted him, jealous of him, throw him in a pit, sell him to, to, into to slavery, goes from then slavery to falsely accused by his master and then thrown in prison and forgotten as he is kind to his fellow prisoners and is left there until God in his mercy later rescues him from prison and gives him great influence over the land at a strategic time that many might be saved through famine. That's what he's referring to here. They meant it for evil decades earlier, but God meant it for good and resulted in a good purpose that has had lasting effect. We also know the New Testament sovereign goodness verse, Romans 8.28. How many of us have that committed to memory? Right? Here it is on the screen if you don't. And we know, right, are convinced of this. Not just know, like, oh, we know that George Washington was the first president of the United States. No, we're convinced that for those who love God, do you love God this morning? And cling to this, cling to this. All things, all things, even affliction, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. His sanctifying, good, beautifying purposes. And it's in light of that, then, that our text this morning here in Psalm 119 tell us, then, some of those good purposes of the Lord. Now, we draw out four of them this morning. This isn't by any means an exhaustive list, but what could God's good purposes be? How does affliction brighten and not tarnish or diminish the goodness of God? Here's the first way. Write this down. Affliction tethers us to the Word. One of God's good purposes is that affliction tethers us to the word. There's a, a pattern in the poetry that starts here with a statement about God. You see this here? Speaking to the Lord, he says, you have dealt well with your servant. Or if we wanted to take it even more literally, you could say, you have done good with your servant, God. Right? We're going to be a little backwards. That could, you know, you done good, God. You done good by me. You have dealt well, what? According to your word. Everything that God had revealed about himself up until this point to uh, the authors here, what they've seen in his word, what God has promised and guaranteed through his covenants, God has not gone back on it towards his servant, even if the affliction may make it seem like it. Because here's the thing, here's what affliction does in our life. Affliction shakes loose our grip on his goodness. We come and yes, I'm convinced of it, but, but, it, but it shakes us loose. And so what does the psalmist ask in verse 66 then? As his grip is becoming loose on the goodness of God, what does he ask the Lord to do what? To teach me good judgment and knowledge. Just in other words, judgment, knowledge here. Again, those words also for the word of God. He's what he's saying is, teach me your word, right? Teach me your good word. Judgment and knowledge here. Uh, where do we find these things? We find them in the Bible. How do we rightfully judge what is happening in our life? How do we understand what is going on here? We find it in his word. 
And what does affliction do? It draws us deeper in, it tethers us to the word. It shortens the lines between God's goodness and our affliction. It brings us closer to the Lord that we can render good judgment and truly understand what is happening here and how this can be good. And then he makes this confession, not of one, a confession of sin, but a confession of belief. Look at what he says, for I believe in your commandments. Again, essentially, I believe in your word. It's not like limiting his belief to like the Ten Commandments or anything. But I believe in your word. I'm taking you at your word. I believe that your commandments are for my good. He's making this confession. He's proclaiming this belief in the midst of his affliction. Dropping, he's essentially dropping his anchor down into the waters of the word so that would catch upon the rock of the goodness of God to keep him from going under in the storms of his affliction. You know, when we're smooth sailing across the seas, it can be easy to lose sight of the goodness of God. Kick back and comfort and think, man, things are going great, and man, how easy it is to believe that, man, all this goodness is because of my goodness, and yet it is the strength of the goodness of God that is proven out in the midst of the storm. And all the times that we are help. And so affliction works for our good because it tethers us to the word. It keeps us close. It draws us into taking Christ at his command to abide in him, to abide in his word from John 15 more than any other time in our life. You know, in John 6, Jesus there fed the 5,000, proving what? His, his, he feeds all these people. He proves his goodness and his godness. Right? Who else could do this? And then the people wake up and they, you know, they want more to eat. And Jesus like, that's not the lesson for today. And what do the, what do the disciples do? What do the masses of people do? Abandon Jesus. Give him the deuces. We're out of here. Jesus looks then at his 12 disciples. He goes, are you, you going to abandon me too? Are you going to go with him? And how does Peter respond? It's here on the screen. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the what? The words of eternal life. See, he gets it. There's something different about what about the Word of God. There's something different about Jesus. That Jesus' word actually does something. Jesus' word actually proves true. Jesus' uh, word is so good. Jesus' words has eternal significance. And so in the affliction of abandonment, as everybody is going away from the Lord, Peter here tightens down his tethers on the Word of God, which has proven true over and over and over again in his life, which has been relevant every time, every time, has been faithful in every storm and not broken loose. So how can affliction be good? Because it tethers us to the Word of God where we find the goodness of God. See, here's another way. There's something else that it does in us. Another good thing here as we continue on. See, affliction turns us to God. Affliction has a before and after effect, a transformation of sort. You can't walk through affliction and not be affected in some way. And so you get to verse 67 and he speaks of it this way. Like, what was his life like before the affliction? 
he went where? Astray. Like we read in Isaiah 53, all of us, like sheep, had gone astray, gone our own way. And then what was his life like after the affliction? But now, verse 67, what does it say? I keep your word, a life of obedience to the word of God. Going astray, affliction, life of obedience and application following the word of God. You want some alliteration? There you go. Stray, afflicted, application. What does this sound like, church? This pattern. Every Christian testimony. What our life was like before Christ, before the affliction, before the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he wrought in our life. There's many uses of affliction here. And in some ways, you know, in our own life, in our own testimony, we have like a turning to Christ, which was like literally a moment of affliction, you know, the proverbial two by four to the head. Our life going astray, living as we wanted to uh, for our own good, not caring about anyone or anything in the world, just doing our thing. And then God, you know, uses something to... does this convicting work where we see the guilt and the destruction of our sin and yet paired with the beauty and the glory and the forgiveness of Christ as revealed in his word. Now life is different. Now life is one of obedience and application of taking God at his word. And see, this is a pattern not only at the moment of our regeneration, our salvation, when we first came to Christ. Some of, that, some of y'all, that's like a very distinct moment. Others, you know, maybe it's uh, so long ago, it's hard to remember. And maybe for others, it's a process that's, uh, you know, it's not like just a, a one-size-fits-all thing. But there is a pattern here. And it is not just a momentary, one-time thing in our past, but an ongoing pattern also in our sanctification. As we put sin to death by the power of God in our life. As we come going astray, wandering, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? Prone to leave the God I love. And God in His grace, God, because He loves us so much, well, let us keep going that way. And sometimes the putting to death, the sin in us is bloody and violent. So we have to cut out old patterns. because We have to, uh, to put to death sinful ways of thinking and acting but see, here's the thing. It is always good when under the kind, good, loving hand of God. And that's the conclusion he comes to with a second statement about him in verse 68, right? You see this here? Here is one of those no uncertain term statements in the Bible. You are good and do good. He's speaking to the Lord, right? Underline that, star that, highlight it, whatever you need to do in your Bible so that every time your gaze crosses this page, you see that jump off. You are good and do good. No qualifiers, no exceptions, no conditions, just right here in the smack middle of this section of Scripture so that we do not miss the point. Point in which we drop our anchor into. See, life starts with a confident belief in his goodness. Following Jesus starts here, and then you can begin to see it. 
His goodness through affliction. His goodness through the hard times. You doubt His goodness and He won't see it. But have this conviction and you will see it. And if it's hard to see, then ask Him to help you see it like the second part of the verse. Teach me your statutes. Here again, teach me, God. Teach. I can't see it. It's hard. I'm blind. I don't know. I don't know how this is good. I don't know. I don't know how you are at work in the midst of this. But teach me. Teach me your word. Teach me your faithfulness in this. And so he's saying, teach me your statutes. Statutes, right? Not not statues like Lady Liberty or some other like bronze or copper, you know, image, but like laws. The laws of the scripture. You know those. Prohibitive statements on the books that keep you from hurting yourself or others. Why does he want to know these things? Well, God loves us so much that he will use anything to turn us back to himself. He loves us too much to allow us to keep going astray and hurting ourselves and hurting others that he will bring us. His limitless goodness paired up with his enduring love will keep us coming back, turning us, turning us back to God according to his good purposes. But affliction does something additional. Not only does it like tether to his word and turn us back to him, But affliction has this exposing element. It tells us what is false and also what is good. Does something good in our heart and mind, it tells us what is false as it compares it to things that are good. Affliction works like a spotlight. Exposing what is false or a lie or untrue to what is also truly good in in his word, right? And so he uses this contrast here in verses 69 and 70 here. For, and, he, and he draws out one example of affliction. You see it here? The insolent smear me with lies. What's the affliction? It's, it's slander. It's false accusation. Lies from the lips of insolent men. Smear campaign is happening. Right? You're familiar with that, right? To smear something. Like a smearing of adobe on the side of a building to, uh, to obscure the, the wood and the stone, the things that are actually holding it up. And it's as if the psalmist here is like, he's like I'm living a life of integrity. I'm trying to follow God's word. And yet, uh, as we might even uh, uh, tr- you know, really understand the proud, the insolent, the arrogant don't like that. It's just one example of affliction. There's many here. There's many that we could name, but it's intentionally used here because in this kind of affliction, you have the contrast between the insolent, untrue words of the world and God's trustworthy word that we can always listen and uh, hear and delight in. And so, like, point of fact, don't be surprised when uh, slander or false accusations happen against you. It's the way of the world. It's something that we should expect. You may have experienced it at work, right? As a co-worker, maybe even an employer or an employee says untrue things about you to ruin your reputation or to take credit for something that they did not do and they smear your reputation in the corporation. 
Don't be surprised if it happens even amongst a neighbor as you're trying to love and serve them or do, you know, good to neighbors and they don't like it for some reason. And now all of a sudden there's gossip and things happening in the neighborhood or maybe even amongst family members. People that you've grown up with, people you've shared a home with, people that you love, maybe you raised them or... And now you're the target of their insolence. Don't be surprised even it happened in the church amongst God's people. Saw it not long ago as we looked at the example in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, right? The people were thirsty and who got smeared? Moses and Aaron, right? They were disgruntled, and disgruntled people say hurtful things. Things can be said. Your reputation can be smeared. And so where does Psalm 119, where do these verses teach us to find solace in these kinds of moments of affliction? And thus, for any moment of affliction. Insolence smear me with flies, but I smear them back. Is that what it says? But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Solace is found in the word. Continually coming back, keeping and delighting, no matter what, no matter what anybody is saying or smearing about you. What does God say about you? What has God smeared over your life? Beloved, chosen, delighted in. That's what's been smeared over you. Insulin delight in nothing, right? Look at their life. What does it lack? Joy and peace? Grumbling, complaining about everything, anything? Blaming others for looking at their own heart? That's what he's getting at in the expression here. Their heart is unfeeling like fat. How flattering is that in the Bible, right? Proud, the insolent, the joyless, right? Unfeeling like fat, has no motion, no, 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 no really purpose. It's your fat's just there as a blob, just kind of hanging on your body without any sort of a useful purpose, like the other tissues in your body. Just unfeeling, just kind of there. And so, what is it? the hurtful word actually tells us more about their life than our own lives, right? And thus, what it should do is push us deeper into the Word. Deeper in. What does He say? How does He, what, what, what does he say about me? What is true? And so you have this contrast here telling us, well, these things are false. We can just disregard these things. These things are good and true and right. And so I can delight in the Word and the God that I find there. You see, this is the final point. This is like the crescendo about how affliction can be good in this way, for affliction teaches us what truly matters. Tethers us to the word, it turns us back to, to the Lord, it exposes what, what, is, what is true and right, and it then teaches us what is of most importance in our life, of what has greatest value. And that's why he can make this confident statement in verse 71. Like, how, how's this? It, was, it is good for me that I was afflicted. And in my most fleshly moments, I read a verse like that and I think, yeah, right. Shame on me for that, right? For doubting God's word and 
but he gets it. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was the affliction that God used to bring the psalmist into greater obedience, understanding, and delight in God's word. See, affliction is just like uh, one of God's many instruments. Everything is at his disposal. We get that. We have to reckon with that even affliction is one of his many instruments, like a scalpel in the hand of a skilled, wise, good, kind, all-loving surgeon, a necessary instrument to cut away in order to heal. To wound, not in malice, not in anger, not in wrath towards us. For what is linked to the limitless goodness of God, his steadfast love that endures forever. A scalpel in the hand of a violent criminal, what's that used for? To destroy. But not in the hands of God. And so in times of affliction, this proves like our salvation more than anything else, where when things get hard, where do we turn? To whom? To what? Where do we find our joy and our confidence? Affliction teaches us what truly matters. What has supreme worth that when all is stripped away, what are you left with? To the psalmist here, Saying in these moments, all we're left with is the Word of God that has supreme worth. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Who cares what others are saying? Who cares what's going on in this moment? But it is God's Word that has the inestimable value of enormous wealth. I think, you know, like in my case, I'm like, I'll just take a pocket full of gold and silver, right? Thousands in their day was an expression of extreme. Like we use, man, it's worth millions to them. You know, it's worth thousands. I like just a pocket full of this. We looked it up this week. Gold is worth just over $2,000 an ounce, right? Just a tiny little ounce here, 2000 Silver, not so much. It's only like worth $23 an ounce or whatever. But just have a pocket full would make you, you know, a wealthy person, And yet, the Word of God, the treasure that we have here, is worth a truly unfathomable number. Affliction then teaches us that. teaches us that what we have in this, this book that reveals to us God's salvation, His goodness here. Affliction just shows us this is what truly matters. This is where goodness, so that redemption, so that when we find ourselves in those, but what about this moment, God? Or the, how long, O oh Lord, will this continue? Kind of moments. Or how can this be good? Or even in these moments, we don't doubt the goodness of God. And even if we can't see it, even if we can't see it, even if it, at this point it seems to be tarnishing and not brightening, God is at work to do something good in you by His good and loving hand. And even if you can't see it in the moment, church, you only have to wait. 
even as Joseph had to wait, you know, decades before he saw it. You should know this, this, the pathway of following Jesus is always down before it is up. Death always comes before resurrection. And since Genesis 3, the pattern of our life is is broken. It's corrupted. And yet it is not hopeless. And praise God that he's given us his word to point us forward, that we have this guidebook. And, uh, you know, when the, when the path seems bleak and the spirit is in us, like giving us strength of soul in the church alongside us to accompany us so that we don't walk it alone as we all together pursue Christ because he is ultimately the treasure, is he not? The treasure of greatest price, ours forevermore. Let's pray and thank him for that. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are at your word. Beginning with just a, a confession, God, we, we see this. Maybe we have some doubts about it. We have our own situations. And so we just, as we even come before you, God, here are our circumstances. Here's my, but what about this moment, God? And we, we just tell you about it. confess sin and like I can't see your goodness God but I believe it so we confess that to the Lord God I believe it I, I can't see it I believe it and we now also Lord ask you teach us teach us to see open our eyes Teach us your ways. Teach us your purposes. And last, Lord, we would ask that you would increase our delight in you. That even if we never fully understand, even if we never uh, have all the answers that we think our mind needs, that we would rest in knowing Jesus. Not just knowing about him, but truly, genuinely knowing him. Increase that delight, increase the, the beauty of that, increase the, the nourishment, increase the goodness of just of knowing you, Jesus, of being in relationship with you. Do that through these moments. Do that even now as we respond in worship. I pray in Christ's name.